We often talk about the rise of neoliberalism has made it so that neither party is actually working in the best interests of working people in this country. There's sort of an economic style of reasoning that a lot of people have picked up on and that has spread a lot. Basically a microeconomic econ 101 kind of approach to problems. Thinking like an economist, that probably would have been taken as a positive instruction 30 years ago, but today not so much. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. It's so exciting to have Civic Ventures president Zach Silk co-hosting the podcast with me this week. Especially since, Zach, I understand you just got back from our nation's capital. It's true. Yeah. So how's the swamp? Or, 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 are we getting all the big progressive changes we wanted? It's all, it's all working like clockwork there? Well, I would say it's complicated. Um, <laughs> we met with a lot of people. In some ways, it's the most promising time that I can remember after spending a lot of time in the Obama and Clinton years talking to Democrats about how to help the government improve our lives, that was not so promising. Those were hard meetings, very challenging, very difficult. The meetings now actually are much more promising. Uh, I think people in DC, in this administration and through the Congress are really dedicated to, to solving problems. You know, the thing that's holding them back is the subject of this podcast today, which is some of them are very trapped in an old world, an old style thinking, this, frankly, a neoliberal world order. They've really accepted it. And they're still trapped in that world order. They're still trapped in that ideological lens. And it prevents them from thinking creatively about solving the kinds of problems they want to solve. So the tension you have is you have a lot of people in this administration and on the Hill have figured out that there's some really new ways of trying to come at these problems, but they're not running up against Republicans. They're running up against members of their own party who are trapped in this old way of thinking. Right. And, and that's because both parties, both the left and the right for decades, have been trapped in what uh, today's guest calls the economic style of reasoning, which emphasizes efficiency and cost effectiveness in designing and evaluating policy, uh, which in, sense, in, a, in a sense insists that we all should be thinking like an economist, which is in fact the title of a new book from our guest, Elizabeth Pop Berman, a sociologist at the University of Michigan. I'm Elizabeth Pop Berman. I am Associate Professor of Organizational Studies at the University of Michigan and a recent author of uh, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. So, you know, the, the title of the book uh, hit me straight up. The first thing I, I, I thought when I saw it was Thinking Like an Economist, that probably would have been taken as a positive instruction 30 years ago but today not so much. What do you mean by uh, thinking like an economist and how has it negatively affected public policy in the US? Right, well, one of the reasons I, I 
picked this as the title is because it kind of can go both ways, right? That it's it's both a particular, this is this is often how economists talk about teaching new people to think in the way that the, that the discipline does. But the book is a lot about what, what these effects have been of more and more people coming to, to think like that. And what I talk about is the idea that there's sort of an economic style of reasoning that a lot of people have picked up on and that has spread a lot, particularly in policy circles. And what I mean by that is basically a microeconomic econ 101 kind of approach to problems where you're focusing on sort of these basic concepts like efficiency, trade-offs, weighing costs and benefits, uh, these very kind of simple ways of, of framing problems that you would learn in introductory economics and that, that can be useful, but that also have these real consequences uh, for, for how we think about policy. Right. And, and I'm sure a lot of people listening, maybe, maybe not as many in our particular audience after uh, a couple of years of, uh, of talking to them, uh, but they'd hear that say, yeah, right, we should think like economists. When we're talking about policy, uh, we should focus on efficiency and trade-offs and uh, cost-benefit analysis. Let's start with how this approach differs from the dominant policy perspective that preceded it. Right. Well, so historically, this is, this is an approach that really came to Washington in the 1960s and, and spread and took off over the, over the 70s and 80s. And at the point when it uh, first entered, uh, you know, if it's sort of a way of thinking that feels very natural to us now. And so it's, it's hard to realize there was a before where people didn't really automatically take this, this kind of approach to thinking about problems. But, you know, what, what it really introduced was the idea that one important way of thinking about what government should do is to identify what its goals are and identify possible paths to reach them and then sort of systematically compare the cost effectiveness of different ways of getting there. And it really um, ran into issues in a lot of different ways. One was just that people didn't think that way at all. And so, you know, so there were federal agencies where these ideas were introduced and they were like, well, we don't even know what our goals are. How, you know, how can we specify and quantify some kind of goal that we're trying to reach, let alone try to figure out how to get there in this systematic way. But I think even more than that, it also pushed people's moral buttons a lot of times. And so there's a lot of ways in which this approach to thinking about policy comes into conflict with other kinds of moral framings of problems. And you know, just to give you one example, sort of the, the late 60s, early 70s wave of environmental policy, environmental legislation, right? A lot of the problem was framed in these very strong moral terms that pollution is wrong, we should end it, you know, it is, it is a bad thing. And that's very different from an economic framing of the problem, which is that it's an externality. It's, it's, it's undesirable, but it's not a moral problem. It's something that you solve by pricing it. And so, so it, there really was a lot of pushback uh, initially because this was not the way that most people, regardless of their political orientation, thought about policy problems. This economic style claims to be morally neutral and really politically neutral. It's just what's the most efficient way to solve this problem? But, but it isn't, is it? it? It introduces its own biases. Yeah. And I think, right, like one thing that makes it hard to push back against is that nobody's arguing for inefficient solutions, right? That in itself is never anybody's goal. But it has this um, sort of surface level neutrality because it does, it does sort of try to evaluate 
you know, what the most cost-effective way to achieve a particular goal is, you know, without introducing explicitly other values. But efficiency is itself a value. And a lot of times it comes into conflict that other things with other things that you might want to achieve. So for example, historically, a lot of Democrats' success in the 1960s was around creating policies that were universal policies. Uh, so something like Medicare, where it is not means tested, right? Uh, it is available to everybody who is over a certain age. Or going back further than that, social security. And this, this idea of universalism is both kind of a morally powerful idea. It's also um, sometimes there's there's political reasons to do it too, that, that a policy that um, everybody has access to often develops a base of support and so it becomes more sustainable in the long run. If you argue that efficiency should be your central goal of policymaking, you know, you're really very rarely uh, going to argue for policies that are, are universal. You know, you might want to expand healthcare, but you want to do it in ways that that involve uh, cost sharing or means testing, you know, that are trying to discourage overuse of, of medical care. And so, you know, so, so on the surface, trying to make, trying to achieve this goal in a way that's more efficient may seem like it is a neutral decision, but in practice, it doesn't necessarily always play out that way. Right. And one of the current examples uh, right now, I think, is the debate over student loan forgiveness. Um, uh, there's on the one, the universalist approach would be just blanket uh, student loan forgiveness. But there's what seems to be winning the argument is, oh, no, that that gives a benefit to rich people and it's not progressive. And so we should means test it and only you know, offer piecemeal to uh, mo most students. And that actually undermines support for it in the long run, in the short yeah. run. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it also, you know, kind of highlights these ways that, you know, you often have these conflict, these conflicts between policy directions that are, are, are driven by economic reasoning and these competing policy directions um, are often conflicts that are kind of taking place you know, on the on the left side of the political spectrum, right? So, so it's not it's not really conservatives so much who are arguing, oh, well, we should uh, limit student loan forgiveness because it's going to be regressive, or you know, we should just do a chunk of it and sort of means test it because um, that's a more cost effective way of doing it. You know, it's often these debates are happening between people who are sort of on the center left part of the spectrum and people who are more on the progressive side of the spectrum. And that's also been one of the reasons that it's, it's really um, kind of changed the space of democratic politics over, over the course of decades. Yeah, can we uh, dig more into that? I thought that was one of the more interesting and provocative assertions, which to be clear, we believe too. We often talk about the rise of neoliberalism uh, has made it so that neither party is actually working in the best interests of working people in this country and that there's a real focus on the Chicago school and the sort of rise of the modern right. But what is often left out of the critique is that actually much of this is risen inside the center left. And I thought you did a good job both in the democracy piece and, and what you've discussed in the book about unpacking the culpability of the center left. And actually I think you even imply that actually it may be even more responsible for the rise of this kind of thinking in public policy spaces. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I certainly, I would not discount the importance of the Chicago School and kind of conservative free market thinking and sort of 
reshaping the broader space of, of political discourse. But definitely when you're talking about, well, how does economic reasoning really get built into the machinery of government? You know, when it, when it starts, it is introduced by liberals, basically, by people who are, uh, you know, people who are working in democratic administrations, people who are uh, believe in using government to make people's lives better, and again, are interested in doing so in a way that, that they see as being as effective as possible, which often ends up meaning cost-effective. And the people who are coming from that space, who have a great deal of success at introducing this uh, way of thinking into you know, into government offices, into think tanks that are sort of surrounding Washington, um, into policy schools and law schools where, you know, people who are going to end up in Washington uh, get their training, that, that it's through spreading it into all those spaces that it really becomes um, diffused uh, into a kind of democratic thinking about policy more generally. And so that's really how it ends up becoming particularly influential uh, within kind of center left circles. Um, you know, and, and what happens, I think, uh, among conservatives is that, you know, this kind of thinking is still effective, certainly, but starting with Reagan, and, and I think continuing beyond that, Republicans are much more willing to sort of pick and choose when to use this kind of thinking, that it's not so much a way of disciplining government from being too ambitious, it's used more strategically to advance policies that you want for reasons of their own, you know, for whatever your underlying commitments are, and to not use this kind of thinking when that doesn't when that doesn't advance a larger political project. Does that sound true to you, Zach, that Democrats are more good government technocrats and uh, Republicans are more Machiavellian? <laughs> uh, in my lived experience, yes. And actually, uh, Elizabeth, I, I went to a top public policy program graduate school. <laughs> and I can tell you, I one of the many things I was really surprised by is how focused they were on these think like an economist outcomes. And you're likely, if you're at a school like that, you're a believer in civil service, the power of government to improve people's lives. And you want you see yourself in a career uh, making a difference in the world. But you now have been trained that the only way to achieve that is through these efficiency methods and through, yeah, I guess one of the things you point out is constraining the harms of government rather than releasing the potential of collective action. Right. And, and I mean, and the reason for that really is that, you know, the public policy schools were very explicitly created to do this, right? You know, that they didn't exist until the late 1960s. You know, there was a discipline of public administration. It was more about sort of, you know, it was more about managing people and kind of neutrally applying the rules. You know, it wasn't about this idea of how do we evaluate what makes a good policy. You know, there was really a specific moment when people came in, introduced this new this new um, way of thinking about, well, what, what is good policy? Good policy is policy that is cost-effective. Uh, and, you know, the, once, once Washington was doing that, universities saw that there was a market for it, and they started creating programs that were, you know, very much centered around this, this kind of thinking about policy. And, you know, and again, like, it's got its, got its virtues. It's, it's very good for answering certain kinds of questions. But like you said, it is also, it, it makes it hard to ask bigger questions sometimes. Well, and I just wanted to say one point on this. Let's not let the law schools off the hook here either, right? In every law school, when you take antitrust or any number of kind of, of government intervention regulatory law, 
they are teaching you an antiquated econ 101 way of understanding the world, including that when you raise wages, you lose jobs, right? You know, that minimum wage is an onerous intervention on a market economy. That is taught as pure factual uh, to, a, to an L1 law student in one of these elite, not just elite universities, at all universities across the country. And so you not only have it baked in your public policy future leaders, you also have it baked in your entire legal apparatus, left, right, and center. Yeah, and I think um, that, you know, sometimes it is uh, uh, this idea that, you know, the debates like a minimum wage and what the effects are going to be, sometimes the conversations that are actually going on within economics and within sort of academic spaces are actually more nuanced and deal with some of the complexity better than what people get taught in these in these spaces where they're just getting exposed to the ideas and the, and the idea is just to you know let's kind of inculcate new law students you know new public policy students right. with the basics of this and there's not a lot of nuance introduced in the process we've heard that defense from economists a number of times on the podcast even even Paul Krugman you know saying that oh you know it's it's much more nuanced it's much more complicated but you know that's just econ 101 it's an introductory textbook and yet that's all most people are getting is is econ 101 now, let's move on one of the in your uh, your article in democracy journal in in the book you use that term the economic style of reasoning in uh, the democracy journal piece, you call it left neoliberalism. Uh, so we have neoliberalism coming from the left, which again, your book, a great history of how that happened, going back to the Rand Corporation and the systems analysts approach and, and how it built all these institutions and the law and economics movement and so forth. But you also have that, that neoliberalism coming from the right, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast from the Chicago School and the Mont Pelerin Society and so forth, considering that it's coming from both the left and the right and the center, how do we get beyond it? What's the path forward from the economic style and uh, neoliberalism of both left and right? Right. You know, I think there are different ways to approach this. I mean, I think one one thing that you have to start out with is not thinking that there's going to be a single framework that is a coherent, equally compelling alternative that you're just going to be able to apply to a lot of different policy areas in the same way. But I do think that, you know, in these specific policy domains, that you really can start by recognizing what's going on when people make those kind of arguments, um, kind of articulating what the under value, underlying values are that one is trying to achieve that are not simply cost effectiveness, that are, that are more important than that. And then using those as a basis for, you know, for, for as a starting point for developing your policy proposals. And I think, you know, we're also going to need kind of intellectual communities of people who are thinking through these things, who are going to be able to provide some of the intellectual ammunition that, that goes along with that and that, uh, you know, that they can pr provide ways of thinking about problems that are, you know, that are less restrained or that are not willing to be constricted in the same way. We need to persuade people, and this may be a heretical thing to say on an economics podcast, but there's much more to life than economics. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, that there are very Right, there, are, there, there are morally compelling reasons to try to want to achieve things with government, 
right? And whether that is you know, making people's lives materially better, you know, whether that is solving climate change because we've all got to live on this planet, you know, those are in and of themselves morally compelling. And there's no reason, you know, it, I mean, you go back to something like student debt cancellation that implementing this policy would just make a bunch of people's lives better. You know, we do other expensive things all the time without worrying about it. And that, you know, that you, you can start with that moral claim and don't necessarily have to immediately step back when somebody says, okay, well, yes, but is it cost effective? Is it possible that, you know, some, some doctor with like a lot of income is going to, is going to get some benefit from this and they don't deserve it, right? That doesn't need to be where you start from. Oh, but what about the moral hazard? If we forgive student debt, won't they, won't that just incentivize people to go out and get better educated? <laughs> well, I will say, you know, I think it's only going to be a limited solution as long as you don't <laughs> solve things on the university end, but, right. uh, <laughs> and, and, but yes. and, yeah, and that and that problem of unaffordable higher education, that is a product of the economic style. We used to fund public colleges and universities, uh, but most of the costs used to be government taxpayer funded, not tuition funded. Uh, but uh, that was thought of as inefficient, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what really ended up happening is that, you know, up into the 1960s, um, you know, most funding happened to institutions and not to individuals. And so, you know, so most of the way that there, there was a lot of government funding coming into higher ed and the way that it got there is that, you know, states gave big grants to public universities of money. Um, you know, the federal government gave uh, lots of kinds of money to both public and private institutions. And tuition was, you know, relatively to quite low, depending on where you're looking at it. And you know, kind of in this in this same time period, late 60s, early 70s, uh, you start to see the idea advanced that what we should really do is, well, one, that students should be bearing more of the cost of the higher education because they're the ones who benefit. You know, it's a human capital investment. It's going to pay off for them in the long run. And so it's only reasonable for them to be paying more. And you also start to see the idea that by attaching funding to students rather to, than to institutions, you, know, you can encourage competition, right? And we said we haven't really talked about that, but the idea mm -hmm. that, that promoting competition, you know, encouraging markets or market-like mechanisms is, is sort of a good way to improve outcomes. And so, you know, so there's this underlying idea that if we you know, stop making education very low cost or free, and then we provide grants or loans to help people, you know, so that people still have access to it, well, that's going to improve the system because people are going to, you know, the students are going to take that money and think carefully about where to use it. And schools will have to compete in order to attract students and competition will make the system work better. And, you know, that was sort of a start of a whole sea change in, in how that how we thought about that area. I have a quick question for you on I read the Democracy a Journal piece and I, with interest and I have just spent some time in D.C. And it does seem to me that, well, first and foremost, let's be clear. Democrats control both chambers of Congress and the presidency and obviously the federal administration consequently. And one of the things that you see playing out is this real tension between how to approach these bit really vexing problems. Democrats want to solve problems. Mm -hmm. I think there's a broad agreement on that. I actually think for the first time, because this was not the case under Obama and Clinton, there's real debate about how to solve those problems. And actually what you end up seeing is real tension between 
this kind of neoliberal wing of the party and whatever this new thing that's rising, which doesn't really have a great name. Right. I'm curious if you see these tensions between rejection of the old neoliberal way, which is this economic thinking and efficiency way, and what is rising. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the first administration that we've had since I don't know uh, that you know there were there were sort of both both wings of this in the Carter administration, and maybe that was the last one where where you didn't have a really sort of strong dominance of this kind of center left technocratic uh, orientation to policy in a in a democratic administration. And I think, I mean, you know, I kind of think you 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 put your finger on it. It's both that there are, you know, there's a new generation of people who are looking at what Democrats have been trying to do for the last, you know, 40 years and saying, well, that hasn't worked very well. You know, we, we're not going to get anywhere if we just keep trying to do the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, and I think it's, it's the outcome of a lot of organizing and, and social movement dynamics, um, you know, that there is just an energized left in uh, this country in a way that there that there wasn't 10 years ago. And I think, you know, as soon as, right, as soon as Biden was elected, and um, I forget what, what, exactly what he called, but he sort of, you know, brought a bunch of the, the Bernie people into the initial committees and kind of you know, said, we're going to have, you know, we're going to bring the full range of the Democratic Party into these conversations. And you can see it. And, and some of his appointees are people who are very much not in this space, um, you know, not in this kind of economic reasoning space. And, and those and you know their ideas have very much been on the table. Now, how far have they actually gotten? Not that far, but I suppose you could say that the that the center left ideas haven't gotten that far either under the current circumstances. But I think it's a huge change, just that those things are really being debated seriously. That like, you know, a program like the Green New Deal can be put out there, and a lot of people are debating it as a real starting point for conversation you know, even if even if it's not something that we've made progress on yet right and and then the cbo score comes in and oh man it's just so costly and inefficient we can't possibly do that because you know you, you can't dispute the cbo score right and <laughs> yeah yeah and you know the cbo is uh very much uh very much coming out of the same same lineage and you know in fact the cbo was initially created because after the executive branch developed a lot of this capacity for cost effectiveness analysis, you know, Congress said, well, we need, we need this capacity too. You know, we can't just leave it up to the executive branch to be producing all the numbers. We need our own capacity as well. And, right. you know, they we, sort of- we, we need to impose constraints on ourselves as well. <laughs> well, not, we can't just let the, the administration do that. We'll constrain ourselves. Right. <sighs> okay, well, I, we've used up uh, most of our time. So we'll go to our final question. We ask uh, all of our guests, why do you do this work? I do this work uh, because I am somebody who came of political age in the 90s. And, you know, this has been a burning question for me of why has it always felt for my entire adult life that the political horizons are very constrained. And so it's just both uh, an intellectual problem that's driven me and also one I think with really important practical implications. So, you know, I do it in the hopes that these ideas could be useful to somebody else and uh, uh, in some indirect way, make a difference in the world. Well, the good news is that the, as you point out in your book, the economic style didn't al always exist. So that means it's not inevitable and permanent. We can overturn it. No, uh, yes. It, it, unlike a uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, there is no alternative is not really, it's not really actually the case. 
th thank you for joining us and, and thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to talk so to you. Much. What a pleasure. Well, that was a great conversation about the economic style and how it's built into the fabric of our policymaking in ways that are constraining for progressives. And I know we here at Civic Ventures and on this podcast spend a lot of time talking about how this insidious idea of kind of market fundamentalism and neoliberalism has made its way into all of our policymaking. I saw it recently on my trip to DC and I, I think it's just an incredibly important part of our understanding of what's going on in our moment. What do you think, Goldie? Well, I'd, it, you know, it speaks to the heart of a lot of what Nick and I talk about, you know, particularly this notion of efficiency, which is at, at the heart of market fundamentalism, that, that we should always be focused on efficiency. And there's a couple of ironies here, um, not the least of which being is that the market is not efficient. I don't know how many times we have to say this on the podcast. Markets are not efficient. They are incredibly wasteful. What they are often is effective, but that's different. Being effective at evolving new solutions to human problems is not the same thing as being efficient. So we often confuse this. And by focusing on efficiency, we end up with policies that aren't particularly effective at solving the problems we need to solve. So, so that's one right off the bat. The other thing is that efficiency is never the goal. <laughs> it's a tool. Like you can design, you can try to design a very efficient program, uh, but it's not going to achieve much. And I think what struck me, particularly in reading the book, is how this economic style, this, this left neoliberalism, this emphasis on efficiency and cost effectiveness has caused us to abandon other values and other goals, outcomes uh, that used to be dominant in our policy approach, but now have been lost forever. I mean, one of the examples she uses is that the Great Society, Johnson's, President Johnson's Great Society in the 1960s, when it was conceived, it was not conceived within this uh, economic style of reasoning. And one of the things that initially focused on was developing more uh, community organization, more democratic participation. Democratic participation was uh, one of the major goals of the programs of the Great Society. And instead, what the economists did, they came in and said, no, uh, actually, if you want to address poverty, you, you don't need to worry about things like democratic participation. You just need to worry about making people less poor. Right, just focus on the money. It's the money. If they have more money, they're less impoverished. And so, a number of things happened out of this approach is that uh, A, we did not have programs that effectively addressed poverty because we weren't focusing on the broader picture, but also we undermine support for these programs because when you have programs that are only for poor people, nobody else wants to pay for it. I think the other thing that struck me coming out of these recent conversations with the DC power structure is there is quite a lot of change afoot and we should have hope. The most important thing is there is a new group of policymakers who are really rejecting this old world order. They are mm -hmm. ready to move beyond neoliberalism and they are ready to move into new spaces. And for the first time, really in a generation, they are in positions of power and authority. 
there is a reorientation around what policy should do, but there's no question, there's a lot of work to be done. I think the reality is that this neoliberalism, market fundamentalism, and this focus on efficiency, it was a project that was built over you know, two generations and installed at every level of government. And tearing that down is gonna take time. Uh, but we really do see shoots sprouting here in the spring. And I think we should really encourage it. And it is one of the most important parts of our overall work is to both tear down this old way of thinking and you know, create new thinking. And that will lead to new language and that will lead to, to better outcomes. Right. And, and uh, congratulations to uh, Professor Berman for uh, helping to build that new narrative. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.